This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On this episode, I'll speak with Jonathan Ward from the Atlas Organization, who is an expert on China. He will discuss the controversy between the NBA and China and how this fits in with China's improper legacy of bullying, retribution, and worse. I'll also offer a full-throated defense of the protesters in Hong Kong. And now, The Nexus. Jonathan Ward is the author of China's Vision of Victory, a 2019 book about Chinese global strategy. The book lays out the ambitions of the Chinese Communist Party and their project for the creation of a new world order built on the, quote, resurrection of China's supremacy among nations. Ward is a multilingual China-India relations specialist with a doctorate from the University of Oxford. Since his well-received book came out, Ward has made more than 30 appearances on television discussing the latest developments with China. Jonathan Ward, welcome to The Nexus. Good morning, Art. It's great to be here. Let's start with Daryl Morey. He is the general manager of the Houston Rockets, a prominent NBA basketball team. A couple of weeks ago, Maury tweeted, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. Even though the tweet was removed quickly, this ignited a firestorm in China and the Chinese Basketball Association, led by former Houston Rocket Yao Ming, cut its ties with the Rockets. Chinese national broadcaster CCTV also said it would not air a Los Angeles Lakers-Brooklyn Nets game played in China. Twitter isn't even accessible in China, but that didn't stop a dozen Chinese companies from suspending their ties with the league. It's been reported China has wanted the Rockets to fire Mori, which hasn't happened yet. Jonathan, can you outline what the issue is that prompted Mori's tweet? Absolutely. So what you're talking about here, on the one hand, is Daryl Mori's support of the ongoing protests in Hong Kong. Now, he tweeted a a meme that I think has been going around the internet, a slogan that says, stand with Hong Kong, stand with freedom. And, um, you know, this has been happening for months now, where you essentially have, in a city of 7 million people, at a peak, 2 million people going out in the street, protesting what the Communist Party of China wants to do to their city, which is basically to bring them into an extradition treaty where any person in Hong Kong, which uh, to this point has had its own sort of separate um, legal system and, and series of rights, can bring them into the mainland to be jailed, tortured, you know, extradited, and essentially letting the laws of the People's Republic of China, um, which is an authoritarian dictatorship, it's increasingly a totalitarian state, letting those laws creep into the daily life of Hong Kong, which has been for you know many decades one of the world's great global cities. So this has turned into a protest movement um, that has spread throughout um, you know the past uh, months and is just ongoing. It's it's many many people out there and it has captured the attention of the world. So uh, Daryl Morey participated in that, and the backlash then was um, essentially China and the Communist Party and, and you know the government there saying, you know what, we're, we don't tolerate this sort of thing. We don't tolerate this from um, you know American organizations. We don't tolerate this from businesses. We don't tolerate this from individuals, even if it's in your own country, even if it's on social media that, that is not um, allowed in China, that's been banned in China. Um, and, and we're just not going to accept that. And then we're going to put economic pressure on and not only through the party, but through leading Chinese celebrities, through leading Chinese companies, everybody essentially piling on to say, the league, you better, the um, association, you better change or else. 
Right. And I mean, this has not, this has even been more than the tweet from Daryl Morey. I mean, this past week, we've heard LeBron James, the Los Angeles Lakers star, who may be the greatest basketball player of all time, saying that he was actually critical of Morey. He, he believed that um, this was ill-advised of him to make this tweet and seemed to be defending China, which to me was astonishing. Um, but it also, you know, if you start to peel back the onion a bit, he has a tremendous, very, very lucrative sponsorship deal with Nike, who does not want to lose the Chinese market. I have a feeling, Jonathan, this is par for the course with a lot of other companies. Am I right about that? Well, that's right. I mean, this is one of the ways in which China applies coercive, um, you know, sort of action on the United States. Um, you know, and it's also, I think, a turning point in U.S.-China relations, and we'll get into that in a second. But as you've just mentioned, I mean, Chinese uh, American companies and multinational companies are going into the China market. This is basically the result of a decades-long American strategy towards China, which said we're going to engage, engage commercially, and then hedge militarily. So we're going to sort of intertwine economically, and then you know, at the same time, be prepared to to make sure that they can't use military action in the Pacific, which is another side to this. I mean, China is now building up a military that's designed to fight the United States and our allies. This is a very serious issue. And we're essentially funding this arms race against ourselves through engagement with China. Now, the byproduct of that entire thing is the entire sort of US Fortune 500, Fortune 1000, um, you know, especially in, in consumer brands and other um, you know, retail pieces are prioritizing the, China's, the China market and looking for you know, what they think of as a 1 billion person market, you know, the rise of the Chinese consumer, I mean, it's estimated that there are 500 million basketball fans here, for example, to use the NBA example. But what China is able to do is in the Communist Party's strategic competition with the USA, where they essentially seek to replace us as the dominant global superpower and to let their authoritarian system you know, expand you know, outside of China and have increasing influence around the world. Um, I mean, they intend to, to run this contest against the United States in which they are ultimately the dominant global power. And part of what they're doing now is um, leveraging our companies against our national interests. And this is something that's very interesting because you see all sorts of examples. I mean, there's a very good one with Apple that also touched on the Hong Kong issue. They removed an app from the Apple store that allowed Hong Kong protesters to find each other and to find where um, you know, police sort of squadrons were coming in to, to essentially you know, do counter protest um, activities. So Apple removed this thing and it's, it's emerged that Apple um, apparently asked its it's television writers to to censor their their TV content so mm. that it wouldn't irritate um, the Chinese government. Um, you have Christian Dior recently in trouble for a map that includes Taiwan, um, and then you have um, I think a very interesting example is also a new movie that's come out called Abominable, um, where the nine dash line, which is China's essentially claims to the South China Seas, actually appear in this map in the movie. So. Basically, you have um, corporates and, 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 and movie studios and you know, retail brands, etc., going out there and taking China's geopolitical line on many key issues. I mean, the South China Sea is, is an enormously important geopolitical issue where there's you know, huge consequences for the United States and our allies in the Pacific. And yet you have that appearing 
um, in movies coming out of the United States. And there are other great examples too that I'd love to talk about. But the bottom line is they're pushing back on the NBA. And I think this is a big moment because for the first time, I mean, specialists like me, you know, can go out and talk about, you know, everything that China's doing, you know, building their concentration camps, their broader sort of expansionist plans around the Indo-Pacific. But nothing does this like bringing it into the American living room. I mean, if they're going to take on the NBA, then suddenly this is an issue. I mean, the, the problem of China is coming into sports bars, into, into homes, into living rooms, into offices. America gets to see what's at stake. That at the end of the day, this government would like to control the way that we talk about the world, what we do, um, you know, what it calls its its core interests. We would have to abide by that. Um, and again, this is the China of 2019. They envision a year called 2049 where China has essentially realized the 100th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China, and they become the dominant superpower. And at that point, they intend to have the dominant military, the largest economy, um, you know, sort of to dominate every strategic industry. I and mean, this is all written out in their plans. I've laid that all out in my book, China's Vision of Victory, very clearly. But, um, you know, we're talking about a China that's 30 years away from its real goals. Mm. They're trying to do this now. You can imagine what it would be like in the future. I, I can. And I, I uh, there's a lot of what you just said, I want to unpack. Um, let's start with, you You cited a very interesting figure that there are um, 500 million basketball fans in China, if state reports are to be believed, and that the NBA earns $500 million a year from China. What does the NBA mean to China and its people? Sure. I, I mean, that's, I think... Um an interesting question because it's it, you're basically talking about China's um, access to American popular culture and consumer culture, and again, our um, you know cultural products are so incredibly powerful over there. I mean, our movies, our you know our sports, um, you know our, our fast food, all sorts of things. And at the same time, these are also the, the pieces that are targeted by China when things go wrong in U.S.-China relations. So there's an example um, from 1999 when um, the U.S. essentially accidentally bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade during um, the Balkans uh, crisis. And and people from China went out to the street during that and the EP3 incident in the Pacific and started torturing, uh, torching, you know, setting on fire McDonald's, yeah. KFCs. I mean, there are these oh, pictures, no. you know, of, of Ronald McDonald on fire it's because of this <laughs> issue of U.S.-China relations. So, so, you know, this always becomes a flashpoint. It's like on one hand, access to this market is something that our corporates are pursuing. And yet it's a double-edged sword because it, it awakens the ire of the party. And also it awakens the ire of, um, you know, this nationalistic uh, tendency that, that, you know, China specialists are aware, well aware of, but that many people that don't have direct experience with the country have, have sort of less um, exposure to. So, so, so that's the nature of the China market is there are all these hot button issues that people think um, they have their hands on and they don't. And at the same time, the party is willing to leverage all of that in their contest with the United States, where they really do see themselves coming to dominate uh, the global order. I find it interesting, though, because uh, I read a piece this week in Sports Illustrated that said that as much as it might be alarming and frightening to a lot of people in the NBA to lose the China market, it's actually possible they can. I mean, I, I cited they cited the. $500 million a year revenue stream from China, but but the NBA takes in $8 billion a year. I mean, it is a, a, a megalopolis in, in all senses of the word. So theoretically, they could lose China for a while or perhaps ever and, and keep on going and keep on profiting. Um, 
In terms of the push and pull that's going on with China and the U.S., do you even think that's a possibility? Well, here's you know here's the thing. I mean, the the contrast between this and some of the other corporate examples is, as you rightly point out, this may be a situation where the NBA has some leverage. Um, you know, unlike Apple and Tiffany's and others that really see themselves as beholden to this market and can't lose it. Um, I mean, there, there are all these basketball fans in China. Um, if they were to lose the NBA, they don't really have a replacement. It's not going to be the China Basketball Association. <laughs> and at the same time, their, their government um, would, would have committed a, a real sort of, uh, sort of an own goal here. Um, to mix sports metaphors, I guess, and, and um, you know, if, if they if they uh, irritate their population by by getting rid of something that, that matters, it's a piece of American culture that's just actually really appreciated over there. Then that's not good for the Chinese government either. So they've they've sort of taken this this approach. And then there's something that I think really matters here, which is you know, at time of at, at as of today's date, you know, October seventeenth, twenty nineteen, I think the hero in this story is really Adam Silver. Um, he's done something extraordinary, in my opinion, um, just as somebody who who looks at the big picture on U.S.-China relations, and what that is is he's standing up um, for this position. He's standing up for free speech, for American values, for being an American company um, in a way when no one else will do that. Will Tim Cook do that? No. Will Starbucks do that? No. Will um, you know Tiffany's or, or Dior's French? But you know, you go down the list. Nobody is standing up for what it means to have American values, to have values that have to do with human rights, democracy, free speech in the face of this market opportunity, essentially, in China, and in dealing with a country who, who releases, you know, very hostile propaganda, which, you know, we could talk about that all day. But I want to read what Adam Silver said, um, because they asked him to fire Daryl Moore. Yes. They asked, you know, they, think about this, a foreign government says to the National Basketball Association, we want you to fire this guy. That does. Yep. Okay. And Adam Moore, I mean, sorry, um, Adam Silver says, we make clear that we were being asked to fire him by the Chinese government, by the parties that we dealt with. Well, we said there's no chance that's happening. There's no chance we'll even discipline him. These American values, we are an American business, travel with us wherever we go. And one of those values is free expression. We wanted to make sure that everyone understood we were supporting free expression. Now, you contrast that. I mean, I think that's just heroic. I really do. Um, it's time for someone to do that. And it's time for a lot more people to do that. I mean, the, the, the real cost of the Chinese market is that you're supposed to toe the party line right. and on issues that actually are international issues. I mean, the South China Sea, um, you know, returning to the example of Abominable, I mean, that, that movie is now being pulled in Vietnam and in other countries where China's actually using paramilitary action to, to force its claims in the South China Sea. You know, it's a big issue. And, and I think standing up on this is just it's where we all have to be going. Let's get into that because I have a feeling a lot of people may not understand the significance of a map. I mean, it's in in the world history, maps have been a big deal. But in, in the last 50 years or more, not many people are in the United States are even aware of, of issues with maps. But yet, when it comes to China, and when it comes to territory, this is as hot a button an issue as you're going to get. Can you explain what the mapping issues are that have been touched upon with Abominable and with other um, companies, uh, and, and, and why? What's going on with it? Absolutely. I mean, essentially, the South China Sea. I mean, and this is an issue that's been, you know, all over the news for years. I mean, as China builds military islands there, as they build a military that's designed, um, you know, they're rolling out aircraft carriers now and submarines and all of this. Xi Jinping, the, the leader of China is talking on a regular basis about um, his military needs to be prepared to fight and win wars. 
you know, these wars that he's talking about are, you know, presumably with American allies such as um, Japan and, and also with other countries like Vietnam and, and, and you know, um, their, their interest in taking over Taiwan. So, so, you know, you really have a militarized China that's been reinvesting all the dividends they've earned from trade with the United States into a military that's designed to take us out of the Pacific. Um, and the maps come into this in the sense that the way the Communist Party looks at history is, is that everything was essentially taken from China. China was the dominant empire in its region, in sort of East Asia, in a pre-modern, sort of pre-globalized world. And ultimately, in this contest with other empires, China did not succeed. And they now call it the century of national humiliation, the Bainan Bulge, which means 100 years of national humiliation. Oh, wow. And the idea today is that we're going through what Chinese leaders call um, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And this is this idea that China is going to restore its position at the head of, of all powers and that it will build essentially build itself into um, you know a power that, that no one else can can rival or surpass and they have in order to get there they have to surpass the United States economically technologically and militarily so that's the program they've laid this whole thing out in in, in written detail you know strategies that they work from um, and and you know we, we we have access to all of that essentially because it's it's been explained. Um, and people need to know that stuff better. And then you take something like the South China Sea, where they're trying to enforce claims, um, both by using paramilitary, both by doing their military buildup, um, by running diplomacy around the world that says this belongs to us. I mean, it was ruled um, in the United Nations um, that, that their, the claims to the South China Sea were, were, were invalid, they were bogus. Um, and China loves to go back on, on old treaties and sort of selectively cherry pick. You take the Hong Kong issue, for example, and their agreement with the British which said that Hong Kong will maintain essentially its autonomy, they say, well, that's a historical document that has no meaning. I mean, this is how they do things. They, they went to war with India over things like this in the 1960s. Um, so very selective use of history, a very, um, you know, sort of tailored piece of it. And then there's also the geopolitical side, which you take uh, Taiwan, for example, which is, you know, right in that, in that immediate geography. And I'm going to read you a passage in China's Vision of Victory that's from a Chinese Air Force manual that sort of explains um, what some of these interests are. So now imagine Christian Dior right. um, getting into a problem with it over Taiwan and the map. Imagine Gap having this problem with the map. Imagine Blizzard um, you know, having these issues or Abominable. Here's what the Chinese military has to say about Taiwan. As soon as Taiwan is reunified with mainland China, Japan's maritime lines of communications will fall completely within the striking range of China's fighters and bombers. Our analysis shows that by using blockades, if we can reduce Japan's raw imports by 15 to 20%, it will be a heavy blow to, Japan, to Japan's economy. After imports have been reduced by 30%, Japan's economic activity and war-making potential will be basically destroyed. After imports have been reduced by 50%, national economy and war-making potential will collapse entirely. Blockades can cause sea shipments to decrease and can even create famine within the Japanese islands. Oh, so, okay, so so brought to you by the Communist Party, right. uh, stamp of approval from Christian Dior. Um, <laughs> very problematic, a real problem. Very much so. That is, it is, uh, it, it's a lack of courage on so many companies' parts, and I agree with you wholeheartedly about Adam Silver, because you put him in contrast, context, I should say, to, to the rest of the, the, the global marketplace, they all look terrible. And the NBA, you know, yeah, they had some missteps in the in the first hours after Maury. They they immediately apologized and 
and that caused a lot of issues in Congress, senators speaking out against them. But I think Silver has acquitted himself well in the weeks that have followed and probably smoothed the path for there to be a, uh, a, um, a, a reconciliation, if it hasn't happened already, with the NBA in China. And, you know, what I'd like to add to that part is, you know, it's, it's, it's important that someone's doing that because at the end of the day, this contest with China is not only a contest over power, it's not only a contest over, over the size of our economies and the dynamism, of our economies and technology, it's also fundamentally a contest over values. Mm. And I want to tell you why. And I want to, again, I want to use the words of the Communist Party of China. Sure. It's something that they called the communique on the current state of the ideological sphere. These were essentially the seven issues that they said they had to crack down on in China. And I think with an understanding of this, you can start to see what's happening to our companies and how they're using our companies to promote this agenda outside of China, even inside the United States. Here's number one, to crack down on, propagating Western constitutionalist democracy. Here's number two, propagating universal values such as Western liberties, democracy, and human rights. Number three, propagating civil society, attempting to deconstruct the social basis for Communist Party rule. Number four, propagating neoliberalism, attempting to change our country's basic economic system. Number five, propagating Western news views, challenging our country's principle that the party manages the media and its press and publications management system. Number six, propagating historical nihilism, attempting to deny the history of the Chinese Communist Party and the history of the new China. Um, I'll leave it there. Number seven is just challenging reform and opening. You can see that even their idea of history is important here. And I think there's something else in the NBA picture. When Joseph Tsai, who was a co-founder of Alibaba in China's essentially um, big rival to 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 Amazon with you know the equivalent of an Amazon eBay inside China. Um, you know they defeated eBay's bid to go into the China market and then sort of turned into the the dominant player. But Joseph Tsai basically came out with his own version of the events on the NBA and he said, look, you know you have to understand the century of humiliation. You have to sort of honor the way that China sees history. So at a certain point, it's not just these values; it's also how the world views history. I mean, the Communist Party has been been very effective and and, and sort of um, you know relentless in controlling um, the historical narrative inside China, and I think increasingly um, we're seeing them asking the rest of the world to 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 look at things that way too. And just for um, the record, Joseph Tsai is the owner of the Brooklyn Nets, so he's in a very interesting position because he is Chinese. Uh, and yet he is also an owner of an American team. So there is that contrast as well. Right. And I, th I think, again, it's important to remember that this, um, it's, it's not about China per se. It has a great deal to do with the Communist Party and the People's Republic of China as they've constructed it. And if you think about the fact of Hong Kong, I mean, the, in my mind, still the bravest young people in the world right now are the Hong Kongers who are standing up, who are standing on the, on, on the sort of doorstep of what this, authoritarian expansion really means. I mean, they get to see what their future would be if that system were to roll over them. And of course, you know, I mean, they're essentially, um, I mean, that is China as well. So you have this other side to it that, that is uh, doing what it can to, to resist it. But, um, you know, outside of Hong Kong and Taiwan, I think, you know, you, you largely have the party and its view and its, its will and rule. Um, you know, succeeding against any other alternative within the, the borders of mainland China and, and increasingly going out into the world to challenge everybody else. So, so we have a giant contest on our hands. 
Um, I just wrote an article on this for NBC. Um, and, you know, to me, what I, what I, you know, I think it would be interesting to think about this as potentially a Sputnik moment for the United States. Um, it's, it's, it w I was interested to see that on October 4th was when Daryl Morey launched his tweet around the world. And on October 4th was when Sputnik flew in 1957 and mm. America essentially realized that we had a serious problem with the USSR. So, um, you know, I, I think we have to wake up. This has to become a major top of mind issue. It's, it's vital that it remain bipartisan. Um, I think people from both sides of the aisle have been very good on this, whether it's, it's Chuck Schumer in general, uh, Nancy Pelosi cares about Tibet. I think the administration is, is, is making very, very interesting moves on China that are long overdue. Um, and I think there are brilliant voices on both sides, both Republican and Democrat. And above all, this has got to become a popular American issue. It's got to be like our values, um, the contest that we must embrace and that we must win. Absolutely. Well, we have to win. That's There's no question about that. And, uh, you know, what one thing I want to get into is obviously the NBA has been dominating headlines in the last few weeks, but this is far from the only problem or issue with China. Can you give us some broad perspective on the tensions between the U.S. and China, including specifically the trade war and currency manipulation? Sure. Um, I, I mean, the issue is that is that our engagement with China, which took shape over the last, um, you know, let's say 30 years since the end of the Cold War, uh, was designed to bring China into the, um, the international system as built and sustained by America and other democracies. Um, you know, some people call it the rules-based international order. Some people call it the Pax Americana, i.e. the American peace. Um, you know, others call it essentially just the, the liberal, you know, world order. And we decided to let Russia and China in after the end of the Cold War, thinking they would reform. And what's really happened is that Russia and China are trying to have a second round um, and to preserve their authoritarian systems, to contest the United States, ultimately break the American-built system, to, um, you know, to bend the democracies around the world to their will. And we see this taking place uh, case by case, whether it's Australia or New Zealand or, or parts of Europe or, um, you know, to say nothing of the sort of neo-colonial um, enterprise that China engages in in the Belt and Road Initiative around um, the whole of the Indo-Pacific. So, so, so that's the contest that we found ourselves, um, you know, in the middle of. Um, it's it's essentially something which which um, I think I think we rather generously brought an authoritarian country that had, you know, the, the last thing they did at time of sort of bringing them in was they, they massacred their own citizens. I mean, many, mm. many um, young people in their 20s and 30s were massacred in Tiananmen Square in 1989. And, you know, soon after that, we give them um, most favored nation status and trade and permanent normal trading relations. Um, they've, of course, abused that um, trading system to build a, a mercantilist power I mean, under the authoritarian regime of the Communist Party. And now this trade war is really essentially saying, look, that's not going to work. And, and do we have leverage inside multinational bodies built by the United States? Not as much because we invited China in, China gets voting rights. You know, can you use the WTO? And say, no, not as much. So tariffs, I think, is kind of a, um, you know, back of the envelope sort of, um, you know, crisis mode, like got to do something now to change, to, to give room to, to unfold a deeper strategy. I do think there's a deeper strategy that's at work. Um, the U.S. national security strategy is 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 the best guide to that. The national defense strategy. There are a whole bunch of things coming out of the White House. There are a whole bunch of bills coming out of Congress. I mean, this again is the one issue in America. It seems to me. And again, I was abroad for over a decade, learning about all this stuff. You know, being in China and India and 
Europe and the Middle East, all of that. Um, but, you know, coming home to America in the last couple of years, I'm like, you know, to me, this is the main issue. And I also see a lot of action being taken both in Congress um, and in the administration. Um, and the challenge where we stand, I think, is, is what's going to happen to the business community. Uh, what's going to happen to, to finance? I mean, finance um, is something where, you know, there, there are a lot of people that are simply investing in the rise of China. So, and they can make money as, as some leading financiers have said, hey, look, I understand this is a competitor to America, but I'm going to make money. <laughs> That's not great, is it? <laughs> so, um, so we have to, we have to be holding these people accountable and developing the right system that allows us to work towards our long-term interests and not simply sell the future or, or lose the future to an adversary of this kind. Um, you know, so as far as currency manipulation, I, th I think that's sort of a perennial issue in U.S.-China relations. I mean, you know, it, it, it has many dimensions to it, but, but I think more important at the moment is the question of China's access to American capital. Um, this is going to be one of those major issues that I think is going to be, um, you know, a big deal in 2020. So we've seen the trade war take shape over the last, you know, since, since 2018, but I think we're going to see a new conversation coming out of both Congress and, and government and also increasingly um, elsewhere on, on, you know, why are we funding this? And should our institutions be funding this? I mean, should we, uh, for example, have our pension funds um, investing in things that wind up into you know, going to the Chinese military? Mm -hmm. There are all kinds of issues right now that I think people are beginning to become aware of. On a, just a overall baseline idea, should Americans care about what's going on in Hong Kong? I, I have a feeling a lot of people are starting to get into this isolationist mode. We hear it somewhat with what's happening with the Kurds in Syria and whatnot. I, I just want to block out what's going on in, in the world. Why should Americans or should they even care about Hong Kong? Yes, I think we have to care. Um, you know, I, I would love especially to see millennials care about Hong Kong. I and mean, if you think of these um, young people as, as a people who are facing potentially a very different future, um, you know, at the hands of, of this this terrible system. I mean, the Chinese system is one, you know, the, the People's Republic of China Communist Party system is one that's put um, millions of people into concentration camps, that's creating a surveillance state, um, you know, a social credit score for its citizens to sort of decide who's loyal and who's not and what they can do. Mm. Um, that, that or, you know, conducts mass organ harvesting on political prisoners. Mm. That vivisects prisoners. I mean, that's taking their organs out with our lives. And, you know, these young Hong Kongers are standing on the edges of that system and its potential reach into their daily lives. So for us, while well, this is a world away today, well, it's across the Pacific, you know, the NBA notwithstanding, um, for, for those young people in Hong Kong, this is their, you know, this is a future that they, they are in the streets and, they're, and they're, they, they don't want that to happen. So I think we need to understand it. Um, we need to give them their, our attention. Um, our awareness. And, um, you know, to me, there is a certain kind of like when John F. Kennedy, you know, said the lines that would live in history where he was in Berlin, he said, Ich bin ein Berliner. And he said, you know, I am also a Berliner because of this wall. And I think with the Hong Kongers, I think we kind of need to say that Ich bin ein Hong Kong. We are also, in a sense, we, we understand what's at stake here because we can't let them face this alone. Profound. I, uh, and I'm glad. I'm glad that people like you are standing up and speaking about this because this is raising an awareness that is necessary in our world today. So especially for the United States, where I feel like the China issue, because of the radioactivity of President Trump, may not get the attention it deserves because people hear Trump 
tariff trade war and a lot of folks almost try to pivot the other way just to spite the president. And whether or not you like Donald Trump or not, what you're saying here today is that we have to look beyond that. We have to look beyond the partisanship and realize that this is an international crisis. I agree. And I think everyone can find the thing in this that matters most. And I always say human rights and democracy. This really is about the future of democracy. The book is China's Vision of Victory, and it can be found on Amazon, Barnes & Noble online, and across the marketplace. Jonathan Ward, thank you for joining me in the Nexus. Thank you. And we will be right back. That was pretty frightening, right? A totalitarian state harvesting organs, locking people up in concentration camps, hell-bent on ruling the world? Sounds like a bad science fiction movie. But wait, there's more. There's this company named Blizzard, which makes a video game called Hearthstone, and there's a video game Collegiate National Championship. All three of those details were new to me this week. A video game National Championship? Who knew? In any case, this is a real thing, and the school I teach at, American University, is actually in the national championship and was playing the game Hearthstone, produced by the part American, part Chinese company, Blizzard. During the live stream of the tournament, the American University players held up a sign that said, Free Hong Kong, Boycott Blizz, on their, on their player camera. The broadcast rapidly transitioned to a full-screen shot of another team. Following the incident, player cameras were removed from the event's coverage and replaced by images of the game's leading characters. A week later, Blizzard banned the American University team from competition for six months, saying what the team did violated the rules, but claiming this was not a result of pressure from China or a fear of retribution from the communist state. Do you believe that? I sure don't. American initiated their protest in response to an earlier protest from a professional Hearthstone player from Hong Kong named Blitzchung. Great name, right? Blitzchung uttered the phrase, liberate Hong Kong, the revolution of our times, leading to his stream being cut off shortly after. Last Friday, U.S. Senators Ron Wyden and Marco Rubio and Representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Mike Gallagher, and Tom Malinowski sent a co-signed letter requesting that Blizzard fully reverse the ban on Blitzchung. The letter stated that, quote, because your company is such a pillar of the gaming industry, your disappointing decision could have a chilling effect on gamers who seek to use their platform to promote human rights and basic freedoms. Indeed, many gamers around the world have taken notice of your company's actions, understandably calling for boycotts of Activision Blizzard gaming sites. End quote. We will see what kind of impact this letter has. But as Jonathan said earlier, this isn't just the NBA or Blizzard who are trying to appease their imperial Chinese masters. Christian Dior, Apple, Google, DreamWorks Pictures, all are scared of losing the Chinese yuan and are doing whatever it takes to forsake American values in the process. These companies should all be ashamed of themselves. LeBron James should be ashamed of himself. China is an outrageous human rights violator, and the inspiring Hong Kong protesters have the right idea. 
Just like I saw as a kid with the Tiananmen Square Massacre in 1989, communist China's government is not to be trusted. And even though the trade war initiated by President Trump is misguided, we have to take a more principled, firmer stand against this oppressive superpower that is hell-bent on steamrolling over us. From the imprisonment of Uyghur Muslims to the absolute suppression of a free press in the Middle Kingdom, China is our biggest adversary and will continue to be for quite some time. As an update, Chinese officials have promised, quote, retribution for the man Jonathan Ward said was heroic, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver. Retribution? What does that mean? Are they going to kidnap him, kill him, hack his bank assets and bankrupt him? Who knows? But Americans need to wake up and wake up now. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and produced by Colin Martin. Production assistance by Ian Heald. Thank you for listening. And if you like this podcast, please share it far and wide. We will see you next time and go Washington Nationals in the World Series. Be well. 